Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We're excited you came across this message. The sermon you are about to listen to is from our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Hope Church. My name is Scott. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Hope. And go ahead and open your Bibles or your device or your apps to Mark chapter 1. And as you do that, Mark chapter 1, I want to tell you about one of my favorite authors of all time. Very famous author. This isn't just any author. He is a literary giant of the 20th century. He is a former atheist, Oxford professor, brilliant mind, has been such a gift to the kingdom after he came to Christ and started writing books to supply and to help out the church of Jesus. And many of you know his, his, his main work is the Chronicles of Narnia. And, of course, I'm talking about the, the late, great C.S. Lewis. Yeah, shout out to C.S. Lewis. My favorite book by C.S. Lewis is one of his smaller books called The Screwtape Letters. How many people have uh, read The Screwtape Letters? I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It is an incredible work. It's actually fable or fiction. And what it is, is it's a, it's a perspective that we get from the word of God, but it's a fable kind of unpacking what we know in the word of God is spiritual warfare. Now, I don't know how you feel about that phrase, but it's a reality for all of us living right now. This idea of spiritual warfare, or to say it differently, There's stuff going on around us that we can't physically see or touch. The book of Ephesians, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he talks a little bit about this in Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, come on, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly Places. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about the real war that is going on around each and every one of us every single day. And C.S. Lewis does a phenomenal job basically characterizing that war. If you haven't read it, this is going to sound a little strange to you, but here's basically what the book is about. Screwtape Letters is about a demon named Screwtape. And he is writing letters to his demon protege nephew named Wormwood. And he is right. Wormwood has been tasked by Satan to follow this particular human around. I know it sounds riveting. So those of you who haven't read it, it's like, what is this book? Okay. Wormwood has been tasked to follow around this human and basically do anything he can to stop him from following Jesus. And so Screwtape is writing all of these letters to give his demon protege nephew tactics and tips on how to stop this man from following Jesus. And what I love about it is he says to him, you don't have to make this man do the most vile things possible. You don't always have, he doesn't have to kill anybody. He doesn't have to create or to to, to commit these heinous sins. 
You don't always have to shoot three-pointers to take this guy down, Screwtape says. As long as you continue to hit consistent free throws, you'll take him down. He talks about not focusing on the big sins, but instead focused on the small inconsistencies of his character. Those small mishaps, those seemingly insignificant sins and tendencies that will eventually take this man out. He says, page 61 of this book, I'll read a little bit of it. He says this, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I share that with us today because the reality is we also are in a war. And we, I've never met one single person, and you haven't either, that decided one day to wake up and say, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to do something that's going to completely ruin my family and my legacy, starting today. Nobody's woken up and gone to work and thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ruin my family, ruin my witness for Christ, and I'm going to do it all starting right here with my cup of coffee. It's a gradual slope. What it is is it starts with a temptation, an option to sin that eventually leads to compromises and, and as he says, small inconsistencies of character that eventually lead to a downturn and to taking us out and making us ineffective. But it all starts with temptation. The reason I bring all that up this morning is because we find ourselves in Mark chapter one in our study of the gospel of Mark in a famous passage where Jesus Christ himself is led into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Some of you have read this passage What's happening here, give you some context, is, is we have already read in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark that, that, uh, that God sent a forerunner named John the Baptist to basically tell the world the Savior is coming. Last week, we looked at this amazing story where he shows up, Jesus Christ shows up, second member of the Trinity. He's baptized, the Father, the Son, the Spirit are there. It's an amazing moment, and then immediately we get thrown into these verses in chapter 1. Here's what Mark 1, 12 and 13 says. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Immediately after he's baptized, he is led into the desert to be tempted. Here's why I believe this is a very significant passage for us today. We always want to remind you, I don't know where you come in today, whether you're really excited to lean into the word of God or you're not super stoked about what we're doing here today. I want to give us all the reason that I believe this is very significant for us. And here it is. Temptation is not an abstract possibility someday for some people. Temptation is is an inevitable reality every day for everyone. Here's what I mean. Every single person I'm looking at right now or every person logging in online, this isn't like one day pie in the sky, put it in your spiritual pocket for when you're tempted one day. We are all tempted every single day. Temptation, 
Right now, in this moment, earlier this morning, on the car ride here, as soon as you leave, temptation is available for you and I. And so this is not some abstract possibility. This is an inevitable reality. So before we get back into Mark chapter 1, I want to lay some groundwork on what exactly are we talking about when we talk about temptation. I want to give us a definition that we're going to operate off of today. Temptation. Opportunities to choose something other than God's best. As soon as I say that, right, we're, we're thinking, there's, there's, it's, it's on the tee for us, opportunities all throughout our lives to choose something other than God's best. The reality is temptation is rooted in this lie that something other than God and his best will satisfy us. So we go out and get it. We're tempted to try it. So that's what temptation is. As we lay some groundwork today, I want to give us a couple things temptation is not. And this is very significant. Two things temptation is not. Here's the first one. Temptation is not sin. Temptation in and of itself is not sin. By the nature of our very text this morning, we know that. Why? Because Jesus was the sinless son of God and he himself was tempted. So temptation in and of itself is not sin. Giving in to that temptation, succumbing to that weakness is when we cross the line into sin. But every single day, as you're scrolling Instagram and you are tempted to pause on that picture a little longer than you should, you are tempted in that board meeting where you're tempted to have an outburst of anger because you feel wronged. And so there's a temptation. It's out there ready for you. But until you cross that line, temptation in and of itself is not sin. Whether it's lust or greed or anger or lying or you have an opportunity to gossip and talk about somebody that's not present. These are all temptations but not necessarily sins until we cross that line and give in and think that that is what is good for us. Temptation is not sin. Secondly, temptation is not from God. How do you know that? James chapter 1. We studied verse by verse the book of James last year as a church. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Here it is. And he himself tempts no one. So when the enemy comes at you and tries to tell you that, that God is tempting you, you put the word of God back at him and say, my God does not tempt. We said last Last year when we studied James, as we studied this passage, that this is such a great principle that God can be the source of our trials. There are times when God leads us to a place of teaching us and sanctifying us in a season of of trial, but God is never the source of our temptation. And that is very important to remember as we look at this passage. So that is what temptation is. That is what temptation is not. And now let's look back at Mark chapter 1. There's two parts of this passage that I want to unpack for our time together this morning. Here's the first one. The Spirit's leading. The Spirit's leading. Verse 12 says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Notice, if you have your Bible open, it is a, it is a uppercase S, not a lowercase S. What does that mean? It's, spo- it's speaking of God himself. So this is the spirit of God, co-eternal with the Father and the Son. This is not a demon. This is not Satan. This is the spirit of God, God himself leading him into the desert. And again, our boy Mark loves the word immediately. 
What just happened? A lot of times we forget we're reading a story here because we had a sermon last week and we have to break the sermons up so we're not preaching for seven hours. But what we're reading today happened right after what we studied last week. For us, it's been seven days, but it's been like seven minutes in the story. So there's this moment, you can go back and listen to the message or read it for yourself, but where the, 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 God, the Son of God is baptized, the Spirit of God comes down to anoint him and to tell the world this is the one. And it's this amazing moment and there's like applause happening in heaven and before the applause even rings out, we read what we just read. You would expect like an after party or something, a reception. Like we just had the best grand entrance of the Godhead in scripture. There's gotta be a party or something, right? Wrong. I thought about this this week in light of, I know a lot of you are graduating from high school and graduating from college. Can we just give it up for all of our graduates at Hope Church? And I've seen, I've seen all these great pictures. You got the cap, the gown, you're walking outside of the venue. And I mean, it's like one of the best days of your life. You just had this moment and you're taking pictures with your family and you're like, man, I can't wait to post this later. And, and this is gonna be such a great, and you're taking the picture with your mom and dad. And just before you snap the picture, your mom leans over and says, yeah, this is beautiful. But like, when are you moving out? <laughs> right, you're like, mom, give me like one second to celebrate. So I thought, like, this is like, we just, like, the applause of heaven hasn't even died down yet. And immediately, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Why would the Spirit of God do this? I want to remind you, as we read the Gospels, we have four perspectives of the life of Christ. They're called the Gospels, first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So as we study this gospel of Mark, we're constantly gonna be looking at Matthew's account and Luke's account and John's account to, to paint a fuller perspective of what's happening. And I wanna remind you about a verse we looked at from Matthew's gospel last week regarding Jesus's baptism. Here it is in Matthew three. But Jesus answered him, that's John the Baptist, let it be so now for thus, here it is, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Last week, we talked about what that means. That Jesus was baptized, not because he needed to be baptized, because he came to identify himself with the sinners he came to save. This amazing principle that Jesus came to identify with the very sinners he came to save. And here's what I want you to see. It didn't change from the waters of baptism to the desert. He came to identify himself with the sinners he came to save. So he was led into the desert by the spirit to continue to identify and fulfill all righteousness. Hebrews chapter four gives us a better picture of that. Hebrews four says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Here it is. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in whom every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. The spirit leading Jesus into the desert was not some scheme of the enemy to get him alone. It was not some demonic activity. It was in fact in, from all eternity past the Godhead as another way to stamp on Jesus's life to say this, he is like you, but He's not like you. He's identifying with us in our weakness, yet not ever succumbing to one of them. 
He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. God is up to something to show us once again, this one, this savior is like you, but he's very different from you. He is the one. He is the Messiah. So that's the first part of this passage, the, the, the spirit's leading. Here's the second part that we'll spend the majority of our time on. The devil's lies. He's led out into the wilderness by the spirit, and there he is tempted by Satan. This passage tells us he's got nobody but the, the, the wild beasts, the animals, and the angels ministering to him. And again, I want to encourage you, we don't have time to, to unpack all this text, but in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4, Mark gives us two verses, but those two accounts of, of Jesus' life give us about 13 or 15 verses each. And they explain a little bit more of what is happening in the desert with Jesus and Satan. So, the devil's lies. He shows up. This is Satan. The enemy of God shows up in the desert with Jesus. And what does he begin to do? Well, Matthew 4 and Luke 4 tell us he begins to lie to Jesus. So why would he do that? Because that is what he does. Jesus tells us in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. He was a murderer. He's talking about the enemy right here. He was a murderer from the beginning. Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. As we understand a little bit more what Jesus was experiencing in the desert, I want to give us three realities about our enemy. I think you'll see these to be true in your own life. Three realities about our enemy. Here's the first one. Our enemy is real. Our enemy is real. So why do you start at such a seemingly elementary space? Well, because we, we recently learned of a study. There's a great research group called the Barna Group. Some of you have heard of them. And they researched the church. And every year they put out a study of what they found about people who profess to be Christians. And this is a fascinating study that they researched that over 50% of professing Christians... Five zero, half of this room, this study says, do not believe that Satan is an actual being, but instead a symbol of evil. Now that's important because if we're out here thinking we are not wrestling with a real enemy, but wrestling instead with some ethereal symbol of evil, I'd say that's a pretty good strategy of the enemy. Make them think you're not even real. In the New Testament alone, Satan is referred to 36 times. The devil is referred to another 34 times. 19 books of the New Testament talk about our very real enemy. And every New Testament author, including Jesus, as we saw, talks about Satan not as a force or as a symbol of evil, but as an actual living being. He is real. Probably the most vivid account of, of, of who this is was in First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, some of you have heard this. Be sober-minded, Christians. Be watchful. Your adversary or enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He has deceived us, Hope Church. If we think this enemy of ours is a little red guy in, in some tights and a pitchfork with a smile on his face hoping to give you a flat tire tomorrow. 
That's not who we're talking about here. He's a like, like a lion seeking who he might devour. I want you to know today and hear he is a very real enemy and he hates you. He hates your witness. He hates your family. He's trying to attack your heart, your character. He is real and he hates you. I thought about that this week as we were just preparing for the service on Thursday when we were in the back, as we always are, just praying for the service. And can we just all agree that the enemy of God hates what's going on in this building every single week? I mean, come on, we're just like, the room is full of people, and here we are singing and asking the God of heaven, I need you, God. We're talking about the faithfulness of God. You better believe the enemy hates what's going on here right now. But you better believe when we're having a service, when we're looking at the word of God, and we're calling him out and his tactics, and we're calling him out by name, that he is double downing on this, on this, on today. So I just want to like declare here, like I have in the other services, Jesus is the king of this room. Jesus is the king of this church. And we stand on his faithfulness. Because even in this moment, not to scare you, but just to show you the reality, even in this moment, there's a very real enemy and a very real war happening around us that we cannot see. But Jesus is king. Our enemy is real. Here's the second part. Our enemy, enemy has a plan. Our enemy has a plan. John, Jesus tells us a little bit about that plan in John 10. Some of you have heard this verse, the thief, that's Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come, that's Jesus, that they may have life and have it abundantly. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is talk about this plan of the enemy, a few aspects of this plan and I'm taking this from one of the accounts that I referenced earlier, Luke chapter 4. Go back, read it later. Luke chapter 4, we get a, a much fuller account of what was happening between Jesus and Satan in the desert. But from that passage of scripture, we read some tactics that the enemy uses. Some tactics that the enemy uses. Here's the first one. Doubt. The enemy of God would love to instill doubt in the believer. He does it right here with Jesus. Immediately, right? Jesus is baptized. It's this amazing moment. The Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And it says the next verse, he's in the desert with the enemy. And here's what the enemy basically tells him. Are you really? If you're God's son, do this, do this. I loved how R.C. Sproul put it. What were the last words according to Scripture? that were ringing in Jesus' ears before he came to the wilderness. They were the audible words spoken by God the Father. You are my beloved son. Satan basically said, are you really his son? And he's been doing that ever since to every single child of God. Found a phrase this week. I, I don't know who said it originally. I, I tried to track down the original author. Suffice to say, I did not make this up, but man, this has been wrecking me all week long. It's something that I believe is, is so true. And if we, if we call it for what it is and, and know this principle, it could help us in our walks with the Lord. Here is the statement. Satan puts question marks where God has put periods. In your life right now, in this story right here, Satan has put question marks where God has put periods. What do I mean? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Period. Maybe like exclamation point. This is massive. 
Next verse. Hmm. Are you really? He's been doing it all of our lives ever since. I mean, think about it. If you are a Christian, this is a great place. This is like great theology for your Sunday. If you are a Christian, you are a chosen, accepted child of the one true God. You have been redeemed and restored and chosen and pursued and given the keys to the kingdom. And now the spirit of God lives in you, working in your life every day to conform you into the image of Jesus. And one day you will spend forever and eternity with Jesus and nobody can change that. Period. (laughs) If you are a child of God, those are facts. Period. But listen, let us mess up one time this week. Let you go too far in that relationship you know you shouldn't be in. Let you look too much on that explore page on Instagram. Let you start talking about your your friends behind their back. Let you do that one thing this week and all of a sudden immediately you're thinking, would a, really, a child of God really act like that? If you really are a loved, accepted child of God, do you think you should be doing this right now? And Satan's putting question marks where God has put periods. This happens in our lives all the time. God has told you that he loves you, but the enemy comes in and says, if you love God, why do you fail him so much? I know uh, that you, you said you've been forever changed and transformed. If God is truly so good to you, why is all this stuff happening in your life? This is what the enemy does as he puts question marks where God has put periods. How could God, who's good, really love you and be for you with all this circumstance in your life? God's put a period. The enemy puts a question mark. Think about your own life. Where are you being tempted right now? and allowing Satan to put question marks where God has put periods. Think about your marriage. This happens all the time in the covenant relationship of marriage. I know what God says about marriage, period, the things that he clearly lays out, period, but it's only one time, so it shouldn't really matter, right? I know what he says about the intimacy between my wife and I and, 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 and the, 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 what I'm supposed to cultivate and, and, and pursue as a husband, but if it's on the internet, is it really cheating? These are question marks that all of us feel. I know what God says about integrity and living above reproach no matter where you are in life, but if nobody really sees, does it really count? If it only affects me, should I really be bothered? I know what God says about stealing, but I'm in a tough spot, so won't I get a pass? Listen, these are question marks where clearly God has put period. He instills doubt in us because he's a liar, and that's what he does. But another tactic we see in this passage is against our desires. He uses our desires. He brings Jesus up to the top of this awesome overlook where you can see all the different cities and and, and nations. He said, said, I'll give you all this. This is kind of a weird situation talking to the king. King is the Lord of lords, but I'll give you all this if you just bow down and worship me. If I'm being honest as a as a man, I'm looking at that and going, I wish Jesus would have just popped him in the mouth and said, get away from me, right? <laughs> if you just worship me, Jesus, I'll give you all of this. What's he doing? He's appealing to the human part of Jesus that has desires. What do we learn from this? He's appealing to your desires every day. Remember, the Bible said he is like a lion. Track with me for a minute. What do lions do? Lions hunt. And how do they hunt? Well, first they stalk. And how do they stalk? They watch. 
They're sitting in the bush, watching their prey. And the enemy is doing the same thing to us every day. Have you ever wondered why the enemy always comes against you in your greatest points of weakness? It's because he's watching you. He is becoming and has become a student of you. It's one of the reasons I love this book is it basically characterizes that. Wormwood is constantly watching this man to try to expose every single kink in his armor. For those of you who played sports growing up, like me, you know that when you are getting ready for a big game, you actually watch the game film of the other team because you're trying to learn their tactics and learn where they're weak. So on third down and one, if you always see them run the ball to the right, you know that's what they do when their back's against the wall. Listen, the enemy is watching your game film every day, watching, learning. I once heard 10 years ago or so, a, a Christian rapper, some of you may know of, his name is Lecrae. He was, uh, he was promoting a new album and he was doing this interview and he just said this passing phrase that just stuck out to me in a major way. And I, I still, I've, I've used it with my kids. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an illustration that I use. He said this, at the end of the day, all humans, we are all werewolves. Track with me. And we have to, our job is to find out what our full moons are. If you don't know what a werewolf is, watch the old Michael J. Fox movie, Teen Wolf, right? A werewolf looks pretty normal until when? Until the full moon comes out and that normal person becomes a monster. And so Lecrae was saying, we are all, there's some monsters inside of us and we're all werewolves and we have to be aware of what our full moons are. And here's the deal, Hope. The enemy is fully aware of what your full moons are. And he's constantly trying to bring them out and exploit them and appeal to our desires. I, I'll just say for me, just being honest, for me, I have learned over the years, my, my wife's in their service, she knows this, like one of my full moons is being tired and, and hungry and upset and late in the evenings. Like one of my full moons is I just need to get my butt in bed. Some of you guys remember if you're a 90s kid, you grew up where your, your mom said, just be back, what, before the street lights come on. For me and my life, that's an illustration that I use. Listen, I need to be in my house with my family, unplugged from other things when? When the street lights come on at nighttime, because I know if I'm not careful in my mind and my heart and my affections and my will, I have a full moon at night. So sometimes I'll just tell my wife, I just gotta get to sleep. The best thing for me to do right now is sleep because my mind is racing and I'm tired. And if I'm not careful, the enemy will have a heyday with this. What are your full moons? To ignore them or to act like they're not there is giving the enemy an advantage in your life. So he uses our desires. He uses doubt. Here's another tactic of the enemy, deception. He takes Jesus to the top of this building basically tells Jesus in Luke 4, jump off. God will save you, won't he? I mean, he'll send angels to save you. So just jump off and trust your God. What's he doing? He's taking God's word and he's perverting it. He's twisting it. He's deceiving us with it. And that's what he does. You know, the enemy has never been a creator. He doesn't create anything, but he perverts the good things that God has created. He's a deceiver. He doesn't create. He perverts. So he'll say stuff like, did God really say that? That's what he did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. 
When they said, this is what God said, he said, ah, puts a question mark there. Did God really say he's taking God's word and twisting it and deceiving, and he still does that every single day in our lives? Another way he deceives is trying to minimize our sin. Comparison. Trying to make us not feel so guilty about the sin in our lives that actually are those free throws that are actually taking us down. And he's making us look at the three-pointers that are being shot in our friends' lives. Oh, I'm not as bad as them. My wife and I have four kids. Praise God, none of them are babies anymore. Pray, pray for all you people that have babies in your homes. But when a baby is fussy, a baby needs to go to sleep. A baby needs to be wooed away from the distractions. What does a parent do? A, baby, a parent takes them with a pacifier or a bottle, right? Just lulls them to sleep. Don't worry about everything going around you. Just go to sleep. I thought that picture this week when I was thinking about what the enemy does to us in deception. We're not careful. Some of us are being lulled to a sleepy ineffectiveness because we're looking at other people and the enemy saying, hey, shh, you're not as bad as them. Look at that girl at work. You're not nearly as bad as her. Shh, 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 shh. And we're being lulled into a sleepy ineffectiveness of the kingdom because we're being deceived that sin is not sin. That's not sin. That's destroying our, our, our fellowship with God. That's what the enemy does. I love what C.S. Lewis says. One more quote from Screw Tape Letters. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Shh, 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 it's okay. Don't worry about them. Don't worry about them. Just do you and what you got going on is not that bad. These pet sins that you aren't telling anybody about, these pet sins that you're keeping from your family that are really destroying your life, shh, shh, don't worry about them. It's deception and it's from the enemy. So he is very real. Our enemy has a plan. But praise God, Hope Church, I got some good news. Here is the third truth. Our enemy is defeated. Listen, right now we have a very real enemy with a very real plan. And right now he is trying to destroy your effectiveness for the kingdom. He is trying to hamper your witness and do damage on your life. But here's what you have to understand based on the word of God. He is like a dog on a leash and he has been defeated. I love what it said in 1 Peter 5. Listen, it said the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. In case you didn't know the story, there was a lion of the tribe of Judah that came to totally destroy that lion. 33 years he lived on this earth, and everything hell had they threw at him. 33 years they tried to, to destroy what was originally God's rescue plan from all of eternity. And on the cross, Jesus took on our sin and died. You better believe hell thought, yes, we did it. He's dead. We know three days later, the spirit of God took the son of God and rose him from the grave for, to forever defeat death, hell, and our enemy. And now we stand looking not for victory, but we stand as Christians looking from victory, understanding that right now this enemy that we're talking about is on a leash. But one day he will be destroyed forever. Look at the end of the story, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is what is coming for this enemy, Hope Church. 
So take heart. This dog is on a leash and he is like a lion, but the lion of the tribe of Judah has claimed victory for the kingdom and victory for you. So that's the devil. That's the spirit's leading and the devil's lies. Amen. We can get excited about that. Just as I close, I do want to talk about how Jesus responded. I think it's very powerful for us to look at how did Jesus respond. If you look at the accounts in Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4, it's very clear how Jesus' response. He takes the word of God and he exposes the lies of the enemy to the truth of God. With every lie, go back and read it. With every lie that the enemy threw at Jesus, he took the lie of the enemy and he exposed it to the truth of God. So this is challenging for us, Hope Church, because in the moment, in the desert, here's what Jesus couldn't do. Jesus couldn't pull out his iPhone and go, what do I do when the enemy tempts me with this? <laughs> Bible verses weren't getting pulled up on Google to defend the enemy. Why? It was in him. So this is important for us. Is the word of God in you like it was in Jesus? Because in that moment where you're scrolling the Instagram feed or in that moment where you do, there is a pass given to you from somebody who's not your spouse or you do have that moment in the office or in the gym, in the ball field, you can't stop and go, wait, temptation, I gotta Google a Bible verse to find out what to do. No, it's gotta be in you. How do you get it in you? You spend time in it. That's why Psalm 119 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I believe so many Christians are ineffective against temptation because they don't know the word of God. Hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So that's how Jesus responded with the word of God. And here's how I just wanna close because I believe it's very significant. And I believe I've failed you as one of your pastors. If you leave this place today, and you leave this place thinking, okay, I gotta roll up my big boy sleeves, roll up my big girl sleeves and fight the enemy. Listen, you will lose. You do not have what it takes to fight the enemy, but praise God, you were never expected to have what it takes to face the enemy because Jesus just did it. Listen, think about what Jesus did in the, gar in, in, in the, in the desert. We already had our chance as humans in the garden. And guess what? We missed it. We failed. Go back all the way to the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter three. We're in this lush, beautiful garden. And don't just blame Adam and Eve. You failed just like they did. We had everything we could ever want. And yet we still chose to follow the enemy and we still chose to sin against our holy God. What we couldn't do in the garden, Jesus did in the desert. What we failed in the garden, Jesus succeeded and gave us victory in the desert. The garden had everything we could ever want and we failed. The desert was barren and had nothing and yet Jesus gave us victory. So we don't do this out of our own strength. That's not the call when you leave a message like this. Try harder. It's not the call. You can't do it. But praise God, Jesus already has done it. So I don't know what desert you're in right now, what area of temptation has a stronghold on you, or what sin tendencies seem to always be knocking at your door every day. You are not strong enough to fight them, Hope Church. But praise God, you have a Savior who already has done the work so that you can walk in freedom and in victory, and your call today is just to press into Him and let Him fight your victories because He's the only one that can. 
have, my family and I love to go, one of our favorite vacation spots is Sedona, Arizona. We love hiking and outdoors family and stuff. And a few years ago, we were in Sedona, like we, we go every year, and we were walking up this river. It's kind of one of those rivers that only goes like waist high or whatever. So you can kind of hike up the river. And we're having fun, splashing each other, laughing, me and my, my, my wife and four kids. And we get to this spot where there's like this little cliff rock thing where people are jumping off into a deeper part of the river. So we thought, oh, this is great. Let's do this. So I, I told the kids, okay, dad will go first because I'm dad and I have to go first. And so I jump up on top of this rock and, and I, I jump off this little rock cliff thing. It's not too high. It's not crazy for my kids, but it's, you know, it's jump. So I jump. Yay, dad did it. So it's like, okay, it's your turn. So my daughter, who was like seven years old at the time, Avery, she climbs up on this rock. Some of you have been there. It looks a lot steeper there than it did from down there. So she's up on top of this rock and she immediately starts to go like, I didn't see that rock there or that thing there. And I didn't realize how high this was. And oh my gosh, daddy, how, how deep is the water? And she starts freaking out. Like full on seven-year-old Avery meltdown. I can't do it. So here's what I did in that moment. It's her dad. I said, Avery, Avery, don't worry about all that other stuff. Look at me. Just, babe, look at me. Don't worry about the rocks. Don't worry about how high it is. Don't worry about all the surrounding circumstances. Just look at me. Listen, I just did it, babe. I thought of that this week as I read Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here it is. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Listen, I don't know what rock you're on right now. I don't know what it looks like around you. It may be way scarier than you thought it was going to be. You may be so high and addicted to whatever you might be. You may look at the depth of whatever you're walking in. And you're looking all around you. And Jesus' call to you today is, hey, look at me. Listen, listen, I just did this. I did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. I showed you it can be done. For you right now, what are you walking in? Well, you are trying out of your own strength to do something you cannot do. And Jesus is saying, look at me, the author and perfecter of your faith. I've already done the work. The temptation doesn't need to be succumbed to because you can come to me and we can fight that sin together. So here's how I want to close. I believe that God is speaking and moving and working in many of your lives. And God just put this on my heart coming in on Thursday that I just knew I, I couldn't disobey. And here it is. The Lord put on my heart, Scott, at the end of the message, don't try to talk anybody into anything. Just Preach the word and trust me, the Holy Spirit, to do what I want to do in people's lives. So here's what we're about to do. I'm about to pray. And I believe the Holy Spirit is doing some work in our lives. Some of you need to come and meet Jesus. Some of you need to come down here and pray with some pastors like we've done both services. and Just confess some sin or pray for some, strong, some strength in the midst of the temptation. Whatever it is, the Holy Spirit knows what you need. The 
Holy Spirit knows how. I had a guy last, last service came down and said, man, I wasn't supposed to be here. I literally came in 15 minutes late to service. There's a million reasons why I shouldn't be in this service today. But I want to let you know, the Lord spoke very clearly because I'm in the midst of crazy temptation. And I just knew I had to be here today. What is that? Some plan of a church? No. That is the Holy Spirit getting that dude here to hear that he doesn't have what it takes, but the Lord does. So I'm going to pray. However God is leading you, would you be obedient? Don't leave this place being disobedient to the amazing work God wants to do in your life. Jesus, would you move and work and have your way? Thank you, Lord, for the victory that we have in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you don't expect us to fight with all of our strength. but You expect us to abide in the one who has the strength. God, whatever may be going on in the hearts and minds of people in this room, I pray, Holy Spirit of God, would you allow them by your grace to respond to whatever it is. We trust you, Lord. We need you. We ask you to move and work as we talk about and we sing about the victory we have in Christ. You are our living hope. You are not dead. You are active today. And the roaring lion came out of that grave to prove that we have victory in Christ. So thank you for that, Jesus.